So if you've got a Bible with me, could you um, open it up to Daniel chapter 2? Um, thanks again for joining us uh, this New Year's Eve as we look back on 2023 and forward to 2024. Um, I don't know how 2023 has been for you. Uh, maybe the Lord has blessed you greatly in the last year. Uh, you can look back on how he's helped you and guided you through uh, life's challenges and maybe helped you to grow in your faith along the way. Uh, maybe you look forward to 2024 with exciting change on the horizon. Um, for myself, as I look forward, I see a lot of big change happening this year. Um, on Tuesday, I'm starting a, a new job as a GP partner in a surgery in East Belfast. And in April, Catherine and I, as Ruben was saying, we're expecting a, a baby boy into the family. So um, I'm sure you can imagine that um, I'm both excited and, and full of trepidation. Um, I, think, I think the key to being um, a good dad at the early stages is to be available to help out. And I'll be available from half eight to half nine on weekdays on a first come, first serve basis. <laughs> um, maybe it's been a more uh, difficult year for you. Maybe things have taken a turn for the worst in your family or your spiritual life. And you worry about what 2024 will bring. In, uh, in Tesco the other day, I picked up a copy of uh, The Economist magazine's um, special Christmas edition, uh, The World Ahead in 2024. I set it down again when I realized it was 14 pounds, but a quick flick through showed that the top predictions weren't all that rosy. Escalations of conflict in the Middle East, Ukraine possibly being forced into retreat in Eastern Europe, a new Cold War in the Far East over Taiwan, worldwide backlashes against eco-friendly policies, and then concerns about the proliferation of AI. Um, a couple of months ago, Catherine and I uh, visited the, the British Museum, and after seeing the, the Rosetta Stone and some other Egyptian sculptures, we came to the Assyrian and Greek sections, and we saw these, these huge winged lion sculptures, uh, which would have flanked the, the doorways to an Assyrian palace. Each of them were about three or four metres high, one on each side, and it made us wonder how the Israelites would have felt as they were being brought into captivity. Of course, Daniel is uh, taken into exile in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, and it's just a few years after they defeated the Assyrians in 612 BC. During his, his father's reign as king of the, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar had led armies in the conquest of the Assyrian Empire, and he'd inflicted a crushing defeat on the Egyptian armies and secured Babylon's place as the dominant power in the Middle East. As king himself, he then laid siege to Jerusalem and took Daniel and other members of the aristocracy with him. And during a number of further attacks over the coming years, Jerusalem was systematically destroyed by fire and almost all of its inhabitants were taken to Babylon. So here we have an incredibly powerful and vicious ruler who's conquered everything in his path and his empire and influence stretched across the Middle East. At the time of, of Daniel 2, um, Babylon itself could claim to be the centre of the world. Nebuchadnezzar had built himself huge palaces, and some of those were actually um, excavated in the 19th century. And if the hanging gardens of Babylon did exist and weren't just a myth, they were probably built by him, alongside other vast temples and a bridge over the Euphrates River. So I hope this, maybe this helps us imagine how Daniel and his companions must have felt as they walked around Babylon, various temples and statues 
proclaimed the majesty and the power of the Babylonian Empire. The statues of mythical creatures and foreign deities stood imposing over them. And prophecies had told them they were, they were here for good, for, well, for a while. Jeremiah told them their captivity would last for 70 years. Um, during, during the first chapter, Daniel and his companions have been faithful to the Lord by not defiling themselves with royal food and wine. God had given them knowledge and understanding, and for Daniel, he'd given them the ability to understand dreams and visions. And at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, we learn how Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by a dream. When the various wise men, or magi as we were learning this morning, and sorcerers are unable to interpret it, he orders all of the wise men, including Daniel, to be put to death. Daniel prays to God, praising the God of his ancestors, and asks them that he is, ask God sorry, that he is able to give an understanding of the dream. He then goes to the king and provides the explanation. So if we just look at verse, start at verse 31. Daniel 2, starting at verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly out of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that stuck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you, made you ruler over them all. You are the head of the gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks, and breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly baked of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united, any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those things, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. It's not clear from just reading the text uh, what these four kingdoms represent, but most scholars are in a general agreement. The first is clearly that the Babylonians, the head of gold, signifies the power and glory that Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed. It almost reminds us of Adam with the mention of dominion over beasts of the field and birds of heaven. And perhaps this is meant to remind him that his dominion 
like Adam's, is, is a gift from God. The second kingdom of silver represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The third bronze empire is the Greeks, and the final fourth one is Rome, its military might uh, represented by steel. And it's notable that there's a, a kind of a progression here from valuable but soft materials to those that are less valuable but longer lasting. It seems that though it lasted the shortest length of time, Nebuchadnezzar's empire had the most centralized power and strength. And this is, a, this is the traditional message of this passage, that the impressive but cruel and pagan kingdoms that we see around us are temporary and will only last a short time in God's eyes before being smashed to pieces. And then, in the end, they'll all be destroyed by the sovereign God. There's definitely, I think, a message for us here as we look forward to the year ahead. Some of us might have oppressive influences which seem indestructible and impose power over our lives. Maybe sickness or poverty, grief or worries about the future. We can take heart that God stands in control of human history and however powerful they may seem, they have feet of clay which can be shattered into pieces. But there's also a positive message here. This seemingly destructive prophecy was really one of good news. The climax of the dream concerns the stone. So what is the stone? It's actually been prophesied already, as early as Genesis 49, with Joseph speaking of blessings by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. From here is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Psalm 118 speaks of a stone which would be rejected, but would nevertheless become the chief cornerstone Isaiah spoke of a stone which would become a sanctuary for some and for others would cause them to fall and to be broken. Then in Luke's gospel, we hear who or what this rock represents. After telling the parable of the wicked tenants, where the son is put to death, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 and alludes to Isaiah 8 and to Daniel 2, applying them to himself, saying, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus himself is this heavenly rock, not cut out by human hands. He came to establish his, establish his eternal heavenly kingdom, which, could, which will outlast all other empires. Although his, his spiritual empire started off in a small part of the Middle East, it soon grew and quickly grew to, to cover the whole of the world, and it continues to this day and it will endure forever. So this message is not just one of destruction, but one of redemption. There are other, of course, some other interpretations of the passage. Some say that the final divided kingdom of clay and iron is a separate kingdom, which is yet to come. Some link it to the Antichrist. Likewise, the rock smashing the feet can be um, interpreted as an end time prophecy concerning Christ's second coming rather than his first. If you'd like to discuss these things in more detail, please speak to someone like David Farrell after the service. I'm sure he'll be able to provide you more insight. I'll be serving tea and coffee in the cafe. But either way, the picture remains the same. The imposing kingdoms of this world are under Christ's sovereign power and are placed by Christ's eternal spiritual kingdom. So as we look to the year ahead, we could see our problems as unassailable, looming over us like this statue. But Christ comes like a rock to smash the clay feet of the powers of this world. Our hope is in the Lord and his eternal plan for salvation. His heavenly kingdom will one day rule over all. In Revelation 11, verse 15, 
we read these words. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this year, we we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We are reminded that though times may change, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for how you've guided us through this year and helped us to grow in our knowledge and love of you. And as we look ahead, let us not be apprehensive about what the future holds, but may we we realise that what can seem all ruling and powerful in this world is only temporary. We praise you for Christ's eternal kingdom, and we look forward to when every knee will bow as he reigns forever and ever. Amen.